Lawan Rahel Solomon in New York. You have been watching CNN's coverage of Russian claims that two Ukrainian drones flew near the Kremlin. We will bring you more as we receive it. But now we want to turn to a tragedy in Serbia. A rare school shooting in the country's capital, Belgrade, has killed at least nine people, including eight children and a security guard. Another seven people were hospitalized, including a teacher. A 14-year-old has been arrested on suspicion of carrying out the attack. We want to bring in now Jomana Koreche. She joins us with more. So, Jomana, mass shootings, let alone school shootings, are rare in Serbia. What more can you tell us? Uh, very rare, Rahel. I mean, Serbia does have one of the highest uh, rates of gun ownership in the world. Weapons are widespread in the Balkans after the 1990s. But this sort of thing is not something people have seen before. They're not used to these sort of mass shootings and shootings at school. So you've got right now families in shock. You've got a nation in shock and many across Europe uh, really stunned by this news. Now, what we understand happened is this suspect, a 14-year-old, opened fire inside the history classroom. According uh, to the Belgrade police chief, he says uh, that they believe that he uh, opened fire in that classroom because it is the closest to the uh, school entrance. This is a school, an elementary school in an upscale neighborhood in uh, Belgrade, a well-known school. And as you mentioned, uh, at least nine have been confirmed killed. Eight of them are children, seven girls, one boy, and a security guard. Uh, And according to authorities as well, seven uh, have been hospitalized, including a teacher and six children. At least one of those children, we understand, is in serious uh, condition. Now, of course, police are going to be uh, looking into the motives. What may have uh, driven this 14-year-old to open fire inside the school that he uh, was attending? We understand and also, Rahel, from authorities that he used uh, a gun owned by his father. And then after the shooting, he called police himself and he was arrested in the uh, schoolyard. So as you can imagine, uh, it was a scene, as we have seen from the pictures that have emerged from that scene, an absolute scene of horror. You've got families who are in state of shock trying to comfort their children. Uh, some some really uh, disturbing reports that we're hearing about children uh, escaping, children in a state of trauma right now, uh, sitting outside this school that had turned into a crime scene with police and emergency services on the scene. And you've got families trying to comfort their children in a country where this is something so rare that people are going to uh, really now struggle to come to grips with what has uh, hit their nation today um, after this uh, shooting, Rahel. Yeah, truly heartbreaking. It's a scene that, unfortunately, Americans have become all too familiar with. But as you pointed out, just incredibly rare there in Serbia. Jamana Koreche, thank you. We want to turn now to business news. The U.S. Federal Reserve releasing a highly important interest rate decision later today against the backdrop of fresh tremors in the banking sector and a still unresolved debt ceiling crisis. Jay Powell and company still widely expected, though, to raise rates by a quarter of a percentage point. But they could signal a more cautious path going forward. So watch that space. And a lot is at stake here and still lots of questions about the policy road ahead. We have new concerns that the banking turmoil in the U.S. is far from over, and that'll surely factor into the Fed's decision making. 
Shares of regional banks, PacWest and Western Alliance, tumbled well over 10 percent Tuesday. Shares of both remain under pressure today. And the U.S. regional banking sector as a whole is now trading at its lowest level in three years. And amid all of this uncertainty, U.S. futures are actually higher after Tuesday's more than 1 percent drop. You can see Europe is in the green as well. And the data dump doesn't end there. Just released numbers show U.S. private employers adding almost 300,000 jobs last month. For context, that is more than double expectations. And all of this ahead of the big U.S. jobs report on Friday. A lot to discuss. Michael Gapin is the managing director and chief U.S. economist at Bank of America. And he joins me now. Michael, welcome to the program. Great to have you today. Thank you for having me on. So I know Bank of America is expecting another rate hike of 25 basis points. Does a report like this ADP report this morning essentially give the Fed cover to continue raising rates? What do you see? I mean, certainly the, the employment situation is still pretty strong in the U.S. I think the ADP employment report does speak to that. We'll see what the official non-farm payroll data uh, is on Friday, of course. But uh, momentum in the labor market is cooling, but on net, the labor market is still pretty strong. So, yes, despite the regional bank stresses that you mentioned leading, leading into this, the, the labor market itself, the general macro economy is still in pretty good shape. It leaves the Fed in a position of thinking it probably should raise rates today. We do think it will. And I also think it keeps the door open to, to rate hikes perhaps in June. So then what does that language look like? If 25 is baked in today, but the Fed perhaps wants to keep the door open, what sort of change do you think in language or messaging do we hear from Jay Powell in a few hours? So in the statement itself, which is the committee's official communication with with the public and markets, we think the language will say something like further policy rate firming may yet be appropriate. So the, the communication would be, hey, we did raise rates today. We think we're done. We, we think monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive and in the right place to guide inflation back down to 2%, but we can't rule out additional hikes. So I think something that says further hikes may yet be appropriate or may still be appropriate is likely how that will be communicated. Can you walk me through the calculus? Because the counter point, of course, to raising rates again is that the the lag of monetary policy has not yet been fully realized in the real economy. And as you know, of course, we have done a lot. The Fed has already done a lot. And most of that hasn't been really reflected uh, in the data yet. Can you walk me through sort of the the balancing act that the Fed is walking here? You're exactly right. And so I would say if you look at the the interest rate sensitive sectors in the economy. So here we would be talking about things like housing and some components of business spending and and manufacturing production. Uh, And even more recently, bank lending. All of that suggests the economy is slowing down. But we're largely a consumer-driven economy and consumer-driven around services. Consumption 70% of economic activity. That side of the economy is still kind of chugging along more or less okay. So the Fed is kind of weighing these two signals. Parts of the economy are, are certainly slowing down. Housing itself is, is in a recession. But the consumer side of the economy is, is likely, in their mind, robust enough to suggest may, one more hike, maybe two more hikes are where we should be going. So that is exactly the balancing act they're trying to weigh. And and to that end, Bank of America is in a unique position because you have access to millions of accounts, millions of American consumer accounts. What are you seeing in the data in terms of how people are spending, in terms of credit card balances? I mean, does it look still very robust from your perspective? 
On net, we would say yes. I mean, card balances are, are rising, but we would expect that coming out of the pandemic. Most ho many households paid down a lot of card balances. So some of this is just a normalization of, of spending patterns coming out of, of the pandemic. So we don't take a, a major negative signal from that. The signal from our card data suggests con consumer spending, at least its growth rate, is slowing, it's moderating, but it's not in danger of, say, falling off a cliff. The consumer doesn't appear ready to take a major step back. So our, our card data is mirroring what, what the remainder of, of the spending data suggests, which is a, a, a moderating economy, but one that on net is, is still in a pretty healthy position. With so many factors out there, the debt ceiling crisis still unresolved, interest rates still not fully appreciated, borrowing costs continuing to go up. Michael Gapin, what's the one thing that perhaps concerns you the most or uh, dare I even say keeps you up at night? Sure. I think it was, it was your lead into the segment, which is we, we always get concerned about a tightening and bank lending standards, certainly capital markets and what happens in equity and bond markets dominates the, the news. But the bank lending channel, as economists would call it, that's still a, a very important channel through which Fed policy tightening works to slow down demand and bring inflation back down to the 2% target. So our, our concern really would be excess tightening, meaning if the Fed's lifting its policy rate, you would expect banks to tighten lending standards, you would expect loan growth to slow. But now there's a number of factors weighing on smaller and, and regional banks beyond just a tightening cycle, which the risk is then banks pull back credit a lot more, you get something that looks like a credit crunch and the economy slows more rapidly. To me, that's the main concern at the moment. There are a lot of factors, as you pointed out, and they seem to be all happening at once. Michael Gapin, thank they you very are. much for being on the program. Appreciate the insights. He is the managing director and chief U.S. economist at Bank of America. And straight ahead, thousands of writers in the U.S. are officially on strike and on the picket lines. What it means for your favorite TV shows. We'll discuss coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. Many of America's late night talk show hosts have been temporarily silenced. That's as several TV networks replaced live shows with reruns last night. More than 11,000 film and television writers are on strike after talks broke down with major studios over pay and how profits are shared in the streaming era. So this means that production on virtually all scripted movies and television shows has come to a screeching halt. It is the first Writers Guild strike in 15 years. The last one lasted 100 days. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins me now. So, Vanessa, where do things stand with negotiations right now? Well, Rahel, we know the two sides did not meet yesterday. So, essentially, negotiations have left off where they were before the strike even started. But as I was on the picket line yesterday and speaking to the organization that represents studios, this is really a strike about survival. This is studios wanting to preserve profits and appease shareholders in a different era of streaming. And writers, on the other hand, want to make sure that they preserve the profession. They're, they want a certain amount of jobs available for writers, and they want equal pay amongst all writers and fair pay. And 
essentially the two sticking points that we're still hearing about is the amount of writers in the writer's room and the residuals from streaming. Uh, the studio's saying that they feel like they do not, they shouldn't have to staff a ton of writers if it's not needed for a particular show. And on the other hand, you have the writers saying that they want that commitment to preserve the profession. And as I mentioned, I spent some time on the picket line yesterday here in New York City in front of Peacock New Front, and I spoke to writers exactly about what they're asking for. I want you to listen to one gentleman who I caught up with yesterday. So there's writers who have worked on successful shows and then are having to drive Ubers in the meantime waiting for the next gig. When you say there are people who have done that, is that you? That is not me, fortunately, but it's, again, it's not about the, you know, it's like the NBA. It's not making life better for LeBron James. It's making life better for the third guy off the bench. And that's what we're trying to do is to make it fair and equitable for everybody so that you can come into this profession and, and make a career out of it. And we heard that a lot from folks on the picket line. We caught up with several people who were on strike in 2007, 15 years ago. They say at that time they were fighting for their positions within the age of the Internet. And now they are fighting for their positions in the age of streaming. A lot of those writers on the picket lines who were there in 2007 say that they're fighting for the next generation, to set the next generation of writers up for success. Uh, The studios have said that they have made uh, increases in compensation, increases in residuals for writers. But according to the Writers Guild, that's still not enough. We're entering day two of the strike. We'll see more writers on the picket line in California and New York City today. Rahel. A lot more to come here. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you. We want to turn now to our back back to our top story. Russia claiming that Ukraine attempted a drone strike on the Kremlin. Now, CNN is aware of These videos we want to show you here, they're circulating of what Moscow claims is an attack on the Kremlin. Important to note here, we cannot at this stage verify these images, but Ukraine, meantime, denies any involvement. I want to bring Nick Robertson uh, into this conversation. So, Nick, a lot of questions, clearly a lot of skepticism, but what do we actually know at this point? We know that uh, Russian state media has talked about and on social media in Russia, there have been, there has been put out videos of what purport to be uh, an explosion or two UAVs uh, coming over the Kremlin at nighttime. The Kremlin, we know, has said that this was an assassination attempt on President Putin. Even though we know that President Putin wasn't there at that time, he was at events in St. Petersburg, hundreds of miles away from the Kremlin the day before that he was working today, not in the Kremlin, but uh, at at his residence some long distance from the Kremlin, just outside of Moscow. So what we know, those are the details. But it's, of course, what does it all mean that's causing concern? And Ukrainians have been putting their position very clearly and say that they use all means inside Ukraine to defend their territory. They're saying that they don't have any knowledge of what happened uh, at the uh, at the Kremlin. And they're saying that they believe that this is a trick to be expected of our opponents. They say that the Kremlin is trying to use this purported attack by what the Kremlin claims are two Ukrainian UAVs to uh, build up more support for the war in Ukraine, particularly ahead of the very important May Day parades on the 9th of May, uh, just a few days away, where there are huge 
Victory Day parades, as they're known, across cities in Russia, most the biggest one at, outside the Kremlin on the Red Square with a flyby, usually, of Russian aircraft overhead. A very big event on the Russian calendar, calendar because it commemorates the loss of tens of millions of Russian lives in the Second World War. So th these are the pieces of information that we know. So Ukraine is saying that it believes that this is Russian propaganda. We have looked at the video, yet, but cannot independently verify. We do know that witnesses near the Kremlin at the alleged time of this attack have said that there was some kind of small explosion, a, a loud bang, a big clap uh, that was heard. So at the moment, it, it's perhaps wise to take a pause on the authenticity of this video partly because we know the Kremlin has such a bad track record uh, on, uh, on, on what it claims to be the truth. It has, in the past, often used what's called false flag events, so to give it an excuse for another type of attack, a counterattack of, the, of their own description. All of this is unclear. The clear bits, as we said there, Ukraine says, not us, Russian trickery, the Russians say... Ukrainian attempt to assassinate President Putin. And Nick, I have to wonder, I mean, Ukraine could perhaps also argue, look, I mean, we would know if Putin was in the Kremlin. And so why perhaps would we even embark upon this assassination attempt, this purported assassination attempt, uh, if Putin wasn't there? I mean, wouldn't Ukraine have the capability of knowing whether he was or was not at the Kremlin? Yeah, you... It would be expected because Putin had three events in St. Petersburg. Uh, two of them, at least one of them was by video link. One was in person. There was certainly evidence to support the fact that he wasn't in the Kremlin or hadn't been in that day. So you would imagine Ukraine would have an awareness of that potentially. But remembering that we have a number of things here. We have the, the supposed video, the alleged video of the, of the uh, UAVs over the Kremlin. Uh, we have the state media's claim that this was Ukrainian UAVs. And we have the Kremlin's claim that it was an assassination attempt on President Putin. We only have the Kremlin's claim for that. We don't know if there were UAVs over the Kremlin. We don't know if there were whose UAVs they were. And we certainly don't know why they may have been used. There, there, there are many reasons. Uh, it's only the Kremlin that's saying that these were, uh, that these were intended to assassinate the president. Um, you know, Ukrainians believe that there is a partisan element. Well, they certainly talk a lot about the idea that there are partisans in Russia that are trying to uh, to cripple Russia's supply lines. We've had earlier in this week two strikes on an important rail supply route inside Russia, just north of Ukraine. Twice this week, one uh, in, in one incident, more than 20 of the carriages were damaged or destroyed in that attack. This morning, there was an attack on a, on a Russian fuel dump inside Russia, um, over the border from the south of Ukraine, some distance from there. So Ukraine never claims these, uh, alludes to the fact that there could be partisans inside Russia perpetrating these attacks. It's not saying why the partisans would be motivated, motivated because Ukraine asked them to or because they feel that this is the time, that the time is right for them. None of this is clear. 
But the idea that there could be non-Ukrainians acting of their own interests inside Russia is something that Ukrainian officials will speculate about. They certainly never claim any of these incidents that happen inside of Russia, with very, very rare exception. Perhaps we're talking here about Crimea, which Ukraine and the rest of the world considers is theirs anyway. Nick Robertson, still so many questions, but great to have your insights and context there uh, live for us from eastern Ukraine. Nick Robertson, thank you. Welcome back. Earnings out today from the jewelry brand Pandora confirm a slow post-pandemic recovery in the Chinese market. Now, while China only accounts for 3 percent of Pandora's revenue, the company is going for growth by relaunching the brand there later this year. Now, more broadly, it is reporting resilient growth. The world's biggest jewelry brand by volume no longer uses mined diamonds for any of its new designs. Instead, it sells man-made stones produced in laboratories. A few moments ago, the stock price was down about 1%. So let's discuss with Alexander Lasik. He is the CEO of Pandora. You can see shares were off about 1%. Alexander, welcome to the program. Hello. Walk me through earnings. So as we saw there, shares were lower. What don't investors like here? Walk me through some of the challenges this quarter. Well, I don't know why they don't like it. Uh, This is the fourth quarter uh, that we deliver growth in, I would argue, uh, a quite tough macroeconomic environment, Uh, consumer sentiment that we know is is in a very low place, Uh, a category which is actually uh, in a negative space. And despite this, we keep growing. So I'm a little bit puzzled, I have to admit. Okay. Walk me through geographically. I mean, China we'll get to in just a moment. Geographically, where are you seeing uh, a rebound and strong growth? And geographically, maybe where aren't you? Uh, So if we start in the U.S., uh, this market has been kind of in negative territory already last year. So Q4 into Q1 this year, uh, it's we're delivering a minus seven uh, like for like and minus three organic growth. Uh, And it appears that in the last few months, we've actually been gaining share with that type of performance. Uh, Europe has sequentially improved, was minus three in the Q4 of last year. Now it's flat. So we can also sense that there's some some more, uh, you know, a little bit of tiny more positive sentiment amongst uh, in some of the countries in Europe. Um, and then we have uh, Australia, which has uh, somehow gone a little bit backwards. They might be one chapter behind maybe the, the European situation. So there's a couple of points negative. Uh, and then China, which somehow has uh, come out of the, this uh, lockdown situation uh, starting January, is sequentially improving to the point where in April we actually recorded a positive like for like growth. And that was honestly a while ago that, since we saw that. But again, it's versus the pre-pandemic type of traffic um, in our stores, we still have some some ways to go. But, you know, it's at, at least moving in the right direction. In terms of the consumer, what trends are you starting to see? And I wonder if you're starting to see uh, a bit of a divergence in terms of income, the income spectrum, right? I mean, I think about LVMH, for example, which not too long ago posted a record quarter. China was part of that. That is obviously the the ultra wealthy, the the higher end of the spectrum. Are you seeing any trends start to emerge between perhaps uh, the lower end of the spectrum and the higher end of the spectrum? Well, first of all, we operate in the middle of the spectrum, uh, contrary to some, what some people believe. Uh, and frankly speaking, the, if I look at the macroeconomists, um, they, they are kind of saying the same thing today that they said, let's say, six months ago. So no major change there. 
If I look a little bit at what's going on inside our own stores, if I look at our core uh, retail metrics, I don't necessarily see any any major shift. Uh, we What we do experience is a slightly lower conversion rate, but on the other hand, we are managing to pull more people into Pandora. So on average, therefore, we can post the type of numbers that we just uh, did for this quarter. So, so no major shift in, in that sentiment where we can see it. And, and I know you believe because you operate in the middle of the spectrum that Pandora is in some ways recession proof because you could argue it is a bit more of a, a, a smaller luxury, a less expensive splurge. Uh, that said, are you and is Pandora preparing for the potential of a slowdown? Well, I, I think already last year when we saw that the jewelry market was was starting to be slower, we prepared for, for this scenario. So if you look at our guidance for the year, we've guided initial, the initial guidance was from minus five to, to flat in a, the like for like guidance. We've we've upped the bottom end of, of that, but we still kind of are now we're guiding minus four to zero like for like. So so we, we did expect that the year would be uh, a little bit more difficult than, than last year. Now, having said that, as I mentioned, it seems that despite us being in that spectrum, the markets are, are down a little bit more. So therefore, we are building market share. And, and in this environment, I think we have to be very pleased with that outcome. In terms of demogra- demographics of your consumers, what are you seeing in terms of growth opportunities? I was really uh, stunned. I noticed an advertisement from one of your competitors, and most of the models were women. It was women buying other women jewelry for a variety of occasions. Do you see that as a, as a growth opportunity for the jewelry business in general? Walk me through that. Well, if I look at my customer base, which is not necessarily my consumer base, so we have 50 to 60% of the customers buying jewelry in the Pandora shops are men buying jewelry to women. Uh, now, the, the final consumer is essentially uh, a female. So we actually um, kind of move our advertising around depending on in which period of the year we're moving through. So if you're in Valentine's, there's a certain type of comms there, uh, which is different from the, the type of... Uh, let's say, characters that we depict in the Mother's Day uh, advertising. Then we have, of course, the, the Christmas, which is a bit more family um, involved in, in that. So it actually moves depending uh, which uh, key consumption period that we're trying to address. Oh, that's interesting. And I know the last time you spoke, granted it, you and I spoke, it was granted it was in November, but you talked about raising prices and the consumer was willing to absorb that. Are you finding that the consumer is still willing to absorb higher costs or are you starting to see a bit more friction there in terms of the consumer? Well, so the history of Pandora is that for the last 10 years, we essentially did not launch any price increases that stuck. So they always had to be rolled back. What we did last year was a bit more analytical in the approach. We assessed kind of where in the portfolio we, we sensed that there was elasticity that would allow for some uh, price to move. So actually, on average, we moved our pricing up by four points uh, in, in Q4 of last year. That's sticking. So what we are seeing, though, is the elasticity is 1.0. So mathematically, what you gain on the top, you lose in volume. But what you're left with is is a structurally uh, improved uh, profit and loss statement. And that's what we've experienced. So it means that, you know, we, we, we end up with an with a interesting component that we can use to offset some inflationary costs. Contrary to other uh, high-end luxury players that use pricing as a revenue driver, that is not our case. And, and we were going to stay away from that because we're an affordable luxury item and that, therefore we need to be very sharp on the value equation. Also interesting to see how the the charms uh, really factor into earnings. Alexander Lasik, a lot more to discuss, but we'll have to leave it here. Thank you. He is the CEO of Pandora. Thank you for the time. 
Welcome back to First Move, a big decision day for the Fed just ahead. Less than five hours from now, the U.S. Central Bank is expected to raise rates for the 10th straight time. A hike today will take the Fed funds rate to its highest level since 2007. And as investors await the announcement, we've got a modestly higher open on Wall Street. Shares of regional banks that, remember, fell sharply on Tuesday, they're actually taking part. They're bouncing back today. That said, former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan says we are only in the early stages of the banking turmoil. Concerns about slowing growth amid all of this uncertainty also putting fresh pressure on oil prices. You can see WTI and Brent both off more than 3 percent right now. Crude falling to five-week lows on fears of weakening demand. WTI trading at about 69 bucks a barrel. Christine Roman, CNN's chief business correspondent, joins me now. So, Christine, look, I think there's risk on both sides here for the Fed, certainly. But it does appear that the chorus of voices suggesting that the Fed maybe take a beat here is growing. Walk me through the calculus for the Fed. Yeah, the, the, the hike and hold group or the, the pause patrol, as some people have been calling it, P-A-U-S-E. But the Fed has been so careful about, you know, telegraphing what it's going to do. And, you know, markets are reflecting an 80 or 82 percent chance of the Fed raising rates by 25 basis points and then sort of reviewing the situation. But a lot of people are saying, look, it seems like a really weird moment in the U.S. to have the second biggest bank failure in American history and then three days later have the Fed announce it was raising interest rates again uh, for the 10th time in a row when we know that so much of that tightening hasn't even worked its way through the system yet. So I think that's the crux of that pause debate here right now. But, you know, if the Fed were to pause, Rahel, I don't know, quite know how markets would react to it. Maybe it would, they would think it was signaling that there was something worse out there. You know, the banking crisis was worse than the inflation crisis. So it's hard to know, hard to tell if the Fed doesn't go 25 basis points, um, you know, how the markets would react. I think that's a big uncertainty. The most important thing really will be what the Fed chief says, what he says about banking stability and about just when they think the bulk of all this tightening that we've had over the past year will finally start to be felt through the economy. Christina, I think that's a great point in terms of, look, they've already signaled 25 was baked in at this point. So anything other than that might really spook markets. We don't have much time left. But just tell me in terms of language, uh, the, the wording that we hear from Jay Powell, what you think we might hear today. You know, I think he's going to still be talking, talking about data dependence. I'm going to be very very keyed into what he says about the banking system and the health of the banking system and the supervisory role of the Fed in some of these banks that uh, that that have shown some weakness, at least in the markets. I mean, watching some of these regional banks fall yesterday for no other reason than just a kind of a lack of confidence is a little unnerving. I'd like to know more about what the Fed thinks about that. Yeah, a lot to watch for, a lot to listen for. Christine Romans, <laughs> thank you. You're and that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Thanks for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.